This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146 Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association. Respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello and welcome to the program today. I hope you've had a great week. I'm going to open the program with a poem by Naomi Shihagni called Shared Words, Shared Worlds from the website Daily Good. Naomi Shihagni is an American poet who centered her poem on an incident she experienced at an airport in Albuquerque. After writing it, she sent it to two of her, of her friends who passed it on to their friends who passed it on to theirs and so it did the rounds and became quite famous. More famous, the poet said, than if she had published it in a book or magazine. A quote from Paul Theroux heads the poem on the website, and for our purposes, this quote is quite important. The quote goes, Most travel, and certainly the rewarding kind, involves depending on the kindness of strangers, putting yourself into the hands of people you don't know, and trusting them with your life. And then the poem starts and goes like this. After learning my flight was detained four hours, I heard the announcement. If anyone in the vicinity of gate 4A understands any Arabic, please come to the gate immediately. Well, one pauses these days. Gate 4A was my own gate. I went there. An older woman in full traditional Palestinian dress, just like my grandma, grandma wore, was crumpled to the floor, wailing loudly. Help, said the flight service person. Talk to her. What is her problem? We told her the flight was going to be four hours late, and she did this. I put my arm around her and spoke to her haltingly. Shu dawa, shu biduk, habibiti, stani stani shwe, min fadlik, shobet sewi. The moment she heard any words she knew, however poorly used, she stopped crying. She thought our flight had been cancelled entirely. She needed to be in El Paso for some major medical treatment the following day. I said, no, no, we're fine, and you'll get there just late. Who is picking you up? Let's call him and tell him. We called her son, and I spoke with him in English. I told him I would stay with his mother till we got on the plane, and would ride next to her southwest. She talked to him. Then we called her other sons, just for the fun of it. Then we called my dad, and he and she spoke for a while in Arabic, and found, of course, they had ten shared friends. Then I thought, just for the heck of it, why not call some Palestinian poets I know, and let them chat with her. This all took up about two hours. She was laughing a lot by then, telling about her life, answering questions. She had pulled a sack of homemade mamoud cookies, little powdered sugar-crumbly mounds stuffed with dates and nuts out of her bag and was offering them to all the women at the gate. 
To my amazement, not a single woman declined one. It was like a sacrament. The traveller from Argentina, the traveller from California, the lovely woman from Laredo, we were all covered with the same powdered sugar and smiling. There are no better cookies. And then the airline broke out the free beverages from huge coolers, non-alcoholic, and the two little girls for our flight, one African-American, one Mexican-American, ran around serving us all apple juice and lemonade, and they were covered with powdered sugar too. And I noticed my new best friend, by now we were holding hands, had a potted plant poking out of her bag, some medicinal thing, with green furry leaves. Such an old country travelling tradition. Always carry a plant. Always stay rooted to somewhere. And I looked around that gate of late and weary ones and thought, this is the world I want to live in, the shared world. Not a single person in this gate, once the crying of confusion stopped, has seemed apprehensive about any other person. They took the cookies. I wanted to hug all those other women too. This can happen anywhere. Not everything is lost. The reason I've included this poem today is, of course, because last week we started discussing how much we depend on the kindness of strangers. And this poem shows just what a single act of kindness from a stranger can lead to. And why are we considering the kindness of strangers? Because of bodhicitta, the mind to attain enlightenment to benefit all living beings. Those of you who have been with us over the last few weeks will know that Tibetan Buddhism describes two methods of developing bodhicitta, the six-cause and one-effect method and the equalizing and exchanging self for other method. We've been through the first and are looking at the second, and in particular the first part of the second, equalizing self with others. This has nine points, and we've been through the first three. We're all equally wanting happiness and don't want suffering, avoid judging one being's happiness is more worthwhile than any other's, and avoid judging one being's suffering is more worthy to alleviate than any other's. We're now considering the fourth point, that all beings have been kind to us, and so we should be prepared to help them in return. But before we go on, let's set our motivation as we usually do, thinking, let this program become the cause for our enlightenment, so that we can help all other living beings in whatever way they need, especially showing them the way to enlightenment. Thank you. Now remember how we said last week that everything we have and everything we experience is dependent on the kindness of strangers. Not only do we put our lives in the hands of complete strangers when we travel, as Paul Teru says, but we also do so when we buy food or medicine, or in fact, anything else. As Tipton Children points out, when we start looking around us, every single thing we have, we see how incredibly dependent we are and how much kindness we've received. She goes on to say that even the people that have harmed, threatened or frightened us have been kind. If they didn't kill us and we lived through the experience, we will probably have learned something from it, even though it may have been painful. Didn't you come out of it in one way, being a little bit stronger, a little bit wiser, she asks. You may have also been more cynical, but we're not looking at that part. We're looking at the part of you that came out wiser and stronger because of having gone through the difficulty. We can see that we do benefit from difficulties, and that difficulty is due to the influence of the person who harmed us. 
So in that way, they've been kind to us for providing a situation in which we could grow because we can't grow in the same way with the people who are kind to us. The people who never betray our trust don't give us the opportunity to develop the incredible faculty of forgiveness. The people who polish our car never give us the opportunity to generate renunciation for our car being dented or banged up or totaled. When we think about it in this way, the people who have harmed us or interfered with our happiness, betrayed our trust or threatened us, they all in some way or another have given us the opportunity which we have taken to some degree or another to develop our own inner strength. The challenge is to train our mind to look at these people and say, thank you, and to really see their kindness. That's Tupton Chodron. And His Holiness the Dalai Lama often talks about the person who harms us as our best teacher. In one of his quotes on this subject he says, I have been confronted with many difficulties throughout the course of my life and my country is going through a critical period. But I laugh often and my laughter is contagious. When people ask me how I find the strength to laugh now, I reply that I am a professional laugher. The life of exile is an unfortunate life, but I have always tried to cultivate a happy state of mind, appreciating the opportunities this existence without a settled home far from all protocol, has offered me. This way, I have been able to preserve my inner peace. If we are content just to think that compassion, rationality and patience are good, that is not actually enough to develop these qualities. Difficulties provide the occasion to put them into practice. Who can make such occasions arise? Certainly not our friends, but rather our enemies, for they are the ones who pose the most problems. So that we truly want to progress on the path, we must regard our enemies as our best teachers. For whoever holds love and compassion in high esteem, the practice of tolerance is essential, and it requires an enemy. We must be grateful to our enemies, then, because they help us best engender a serene mind. Anger and hatred are the real enemies that we must confront and defeat, not the enemies who appear from time to time in our lives. Tipton Children goes on to tell a story of the founder of the Foundation for the Preservation of the Mahayana Tradition, an organization with over 158 centers throughout the world and headed now by Lama Zopramashe. She says, Have I ever told the story of Lama Yeshi when he left Tibet? This is a really good example of practicing seeing the kindness of others who have done you harm. Lama was probably about 24. Anyway, he was quite young in 1959 when there was an uprising against the Chinese occupation in Lhasa. He'd been at Sera Monastery, which is just outside the city, when the fighting started. Many of the monks took their tea bowls, because your tea bowl is your most precious possession, and their little bag of tsampa barley flour and went into the mountains to wait out the shelling. They figured everything would calm down and they would go to Lhasa to the monastery. It didn't turn out like that. They were there in the mountains with hardly anything when they heard His Holiness the Dalai Lama had fled for his life in March of 1959. They realized they better get over the Himalayas into India too. They crossed the Himalayas on foot most of the time. Going from Tibet at a high altitude where you have warm woolen clothes where there are hardly any bacteria or viruses because it's so high into India where your woolen clothes aren't appropriate at all and you have no money to buy other clothes, 
and where there are tons of bacteria and viruses because it's a low altitude and, humi- and humid was difficult. They all arrived in India with nothing and Nehru's government of India was incredibly kind to all the Tibetan refugees. India being a poor country, what could they do with tens of thousands of people coming in? Well, for the monks anyway, they put them in Baksha, which is an old British POW camp from World War II. Lama used to say he was in a concentration camp because of that movie, Seven Years in Tibet. Yes, I think he might have been in Baksha, but it wasn't Baksha exactly like the movie. Long ago, in 1959, they were all sent there as refugees. They were all sick and they had nothing to eat. Slowly they kept their monasteries together and they maintained their traditions and then eventually Lama went to Dalhousie, India, to live. Actually, Kensetab Kirimpshe, who was my teacher before he died in 1999, also escaped over the Himalayas at that time and went to Baksha. He told us that the conditions were very harsh and the monks suffered, particularly because of the heat diseases and the lack of nutritious food. Many, many died before the Indian government settled the Tibetans in South India, where the three big monasteries are now. At that time, the land the Indian government gave the Tibetans was just jungle, and the refugees had to carve out their own villages and monasteries and so on. The monks were so poor that they had to sell the bars of soap the Indian government rationed out to them to buy food. However, eventually they planted fields of rice and put up buildings, and now the monasteries are much more comfortable places, housing thousands of monks. Surprisingly, Kensar Rinpoche said it was the best time of his life, because although it was incredibly hard, the monks formed a very strong camaraderie to get by, and everybody helped everybody else. And just as an aside, when leaving Tibet, most of the other monks loaded their baggage with food and clothing, but Rinpoche packed his with Buddhist texts. As I understand it, the others told him he was mad, but when they got to India, they were able to continue their studies and so on because he'd carried out the texts. In any case, to get back to Tupton Children's story about Lama Yeshi, she says that after some time, a Russian-American princess became a disciple of Lama Yeshi and helped him to purchase some land in Copan, in Nepal, and they set up the Copan Monastery. Now that monastery became a small mecca for many Westerners at that time seeking spiritual goals in the East. And through that, the FPMT network of international Dharma centers was established. Tupton Children says, It wasn't an easy transition for Lama. I mean, his life was quite difficult. I remember very vividly Lama talking about his experience, saying how good it was that he had to become a refugee and leave his homeland. Because before that, he'd been studying in the Geshe program to become a Geshe. Now, when you are a Geshe in Tibet, you're very well respected. People give you lots of offerings, and your students take care of you and do everything for you. Lama said, I would have had a very comfortable life as a Geshe. Everybody would have done something. I would teach a little bit and help others, but I would have had a very comfortable life. I would have been very, very spoiled. But because I became a refugee and faced hardship, I really learned what practicing Dharma meant. He said, When I had an easy life, I never really appreciated what Dharma did. It was only when I became a refugee that I really began to understand what Dharma was about. Then he went like this. He put his hands together and he said, 
I have to say thank you to Mao Zedong. Now, isn't that incredible? Imagine you yourself leaving your homeland and your family and becoming a refugee with nothing and losing your whole comfortable lifestyle and then saying thank you to the person who was the chief political leader in charge of that. It can be done. Yes, it can be done. Lama is a living example of it. If we train our mind in this way, we can see how free our minds are and how much love and compassion we can have for others. And that ends the first point in the second set of three points in equalizing self for others, that is, considering how everybody has been kind to us. Now you might say, well, maybe everybody has been kind to me, but also many have harmed me. And it's our habit to remember the harm others have done much more strongly than the benefit they have given. But if we look at the amount of harm we've received and compare it with the benefit we've obtained, it becomes obvious that we've got much, much more benefit than harm. If I look back at my own life, people have helped me almost continuously and the amount of harm I've experienced has been almost unimaginably small. Of course, this may not be true for everyone, but for most of us, the benefit we get from others far outweighs the harm we receive. And this is the fifth point in the nine, that although beings may have harmed us, they've benefited us much, much more. So, as Tupton Children says, because others have harmed us, that's not a good reason to label them and throw them in the garbage can or to think that their happiness is insignificant because it's not. His Holiness the Dalai Lama sees the issue in terms of compassion. He says, Compassion compels us to reach out to all living beings, including our so-called enemies, those people who upset or hurt us. Irrespective of what they do to you, if you remember that all beings like you are only trying to be happy, you will find it much easier to develop compassion towards them. Usually, your sense of compassion is limited and biased. We extend such feelings only towards our family and friends or to those who are helpful to us. People we perceive as enemies and others to whom we are indifferent are excluded from our concern. And that is not genuine compassion. True compassion is universal in, co in scope. It is accompanied by a feeling of responsibility. To act altruistically, concerned only for the welfare of others with no selfish or ulterior motives, is to affirm a sense of universal responsibility. And he continues, One of the emotions most disturbing our mental tra tranquility is hatred. The antidote is compassion. We should not think of compassion as being only the preserve of the sacred and religious. It is one of our basic human qualities. Human nature is essentially loving and gentle. I do not agree with people who assert that human beings are innately aggressive, despite the apparent prevalence of anger and hatred in the world. From the moment of our birth, we required love and affection. This is true of us all, right up to the day we die. Without love, we could not survive. Human beings are social creatures, and a concern for each other is the very basis of our life together. If we stop to think, compared to the numerous acts of kindness on which we depend, and which we take so much for granted, acts of hostility are relatively few. To see the truth of this, we only need to observe the love and affection parents shower on their children and the many other acts of loving and caring that we take for granted. Anger may seem to offer an energetic way of getting things done, but such a perception of the world is misguided. 
The only certainty about anger and hatred is that they are destructive. No good ever comes of them. If we live our lives continually motivated by anger and hatred, even our physical health deteriorates. On the other hand, people who can remain calm and open-minded, motivated by compassion, are mentally free of anxiety and physically healthy. At a time when people are so conscious of maintaining their physical health by controlling their diets, exercising and so forth, it makes sense to try to cultivate the corresponding positive mental attitudes too. That's His Highness the Dalai Lama. Now I found an astonishing story on the website Recovery Archive, a blog by a recovered alcoholic. She claims to have heard the story from Ajahn Amaro, a follower of Ajahn Chah, the famous Thai master. It concerns a 114-year-old Chinese master, well-loved in China at the time of the Communist Revolution. Of course, being popular as a Buddhist master did not go down well with the Communists, and one day a contingent from the Red Guard visited him and beat him up with wooden clubs, leaving him for dead. However, he survived, and his fellow monastics took care of him until he recovered. The blogger writes, Some weeks later... The Red Guard found out he was still alive and they went back and beat him up again with steel bars, broke his bones and bust his head and he was incredibly injured and everyone was sure he was going to die. He was incredibly hurt and was in in incredible pain and even his disciples who loved him dearly thought even though he's been so injured and so hurt the great master isn't dying. It must be out of compassion for us that he's holding on because he knows how upset we'll be if he passes away. So they said to him, Please, don't just hang on to life. Your bones are all broken. Your organs are smashed. You're in such terrible pain. Please don't hold on to life just because you think that we will be upset if you pass away. If it's time for you to die, please don't just hang on to life for our sake. He said, It's not for you. I'm deliberately holding on and staying alive, but it's not for you. It's for the soldiers who beat me. Because if I died, the karma that they would create would be so terrible, I couldn't be responsible for that. So I'm staying alive, but it's for their sake, not for you. And he lived for another six years after that. Wisely, the communist army left him alone, and he lived till 1959. I have also heard similar stories of Tibetan monks and lamas who spent many years undergoing terrible conditions and torture in Chinese communist jails, but maintaining their compassion for their tormentors. Then the sixth point has to do with holding grudges against those who harm us. This point is that seeing we are on the road to inevitable death, there is no use in harboring resentment against others. Does holding a grudge make our life happy and contented, Or not? And what about when death finally does arrive? If the grudge arises then, what sort of death will we have? And how will our aggression influence our next life? Both the death and the coming life will be very miserable. As Tipton Children says, Ask yourself, Do I want to die with animosity? Do I want to be lying on my deathbed and have my mind overwhelmed with animosity because I held on to a grudge? That's a really painful death isn't it? I don't think any of us want to die that way. If we don't want to die that way, why live that way? Another point about holding a grudge is that it may easily be passed on to others. 
I've spoken before about the blood revenge law in northern Albania. The blog Dispatches from the Global Village talks about a case involving a southern Albanian woman by the name of Ilona, who married into a northern Albanian family feud. The story goes, It was one in, into one of those families that Ilona wed. Coming from the south, where such practice was unknown, her life would soon be caught up, indeed trapped by the ancient custom of feuding. The family of her husband, a pastor of an evangelical church, was caught in a blood feud in Shkodra. One of his uncles had killed a young man of another family. Within his family, there were 24 families, all linked into the family accused of being the offender. What, however, twisted this into a community-wide jungle of conspiracy, economic deprivation and fear was that the husband of each family feared for their lives and thus would not ever leave their home, not for work, not for anything, unless cloaked in camouflage and hidden in the trunk of a car or under blankets. The implications are obvious. The man, and in this part of the world the male rules, is not able to work, confined to the house, protected by his cache of armaments, knowing any exposure might lead to death. Financially strapped, the wife would have to earn the family income, while the male, limited to the family house, would stew, frustrated by his inability to work, and often aided by alcohol, abuse of every kind would be rife. One issue devolved into another. Ilona's husband, Dritan, never left their house for four years, so she took up the role as pastor of their congregation. Finally, they fled to England. But after two years, Dritan said no longer would he run and hide from the sin of his community. He would return, pastor the congregation, and trust God for his safety. For 18 months, he went about his work, caring for his congregation, and living openly, invited the offended family, as the custom allowed, to meet and find a means for a reconciliation other than by bloodletting. They refused to meet. He knew his life was in constant danger, even though the canon, that's the law permitting blood feuds, forbids that a priest be killed for blood revenge. Finally, one day while leaving the church, Seven bullets struck him down and he died. The police arrived along with the media. Ilona was asked by a television reporter for her response. I forgive, she said. Then, when asked if they were going to lay charges, she said, forgiveness doesn't allow for that. While the impact on family and church was enormous, what surprised me was the freedom triggered by his death. The husbands and fathers of 24 families under the blood curse were now freed. The payment had been made in blood and now the offended family had exacted its price and no longer were the men of Dritan's extended family forced to live in fear and self-confinement. Dritan may have deliberately paid the blood price with his life, but in all honesty, apart from causing untold harm, what is the use of holding grudges? And that's something to consider for the coming week. For now time is up, and this is where we must say our farewells today. As usual, please dedicate any positive potential from the program to the enlightenment of all living beings. Thanks for joining us today, and please tune in again next week. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.